I had been experiencing an, an incredible amount of fatigue, which I first attributed to just aging and then realized that this was not something that a 55-year-old man should be experiencing, particularly one who was in pretty good physical condition. And I went to see um, my physician, and after examining me, she suggested that I allow her to admit me to the hospital. And I just couldn't believe that I was going to be hospitalized. And she felt that I had pneumonia and that the hospital was the best place for me to be to conduct a variety of tests and to get a variety of treatments and that I would have the quickest path to recovery. Um, unfortunately, uh, after being in the hospital for two and a half days, they had ruled out pneumonia and were then moving to various biopsies to try to determine what was wrong with me. Welcome to Health Stories, interviews inside the healthcare system. On this podcast, we talk to clinicians, patients, family members, and caregivers as they navigate through the U.S. healthcare system and offer tips and insights for the rest of us on our own journeys. I'm Dr. Nicole Deffenbaugh, clinical communications specialist and a health comm scholar, and I am joined today here with Dr. Jay Baglia, who's an associate professor at DePaul University in health communication, and he's going to be talking about surviving stage four cancer. So welcome to the podcast, Jay. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Okay. I think I gave it away in the title, <laughs> but but we'll go back to the story. So you, you just ended that... They were going to take biopsy. Something was going to something was going on. It wasn't pneumonia. It wasn't pneumonia, and I remember the woman who came in to die to tell me my diagnosis had introduced herself the previous day as a hematologist, but when she came in the next day with three residents, she introduced herself again as an oncologist. Interesting. Oh, hemonc, right? So right. hemonc is hematology oncology. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So yeah. why did she change her title? Because... Well, I, I can only presume that when she introduced herself the previous day as a hematologist, it was because they didn't know what my diagnosis was, but she had been consulted because they were sure it was some sort of bloodborne illness yeah. that, I was, that I was dealing with, okay. given the fatigue and, and other sorts of symptoms. But they didn't know yet. They did not know yet. So when she introduced herself as an oncologist and had a number of residents with her, did that sort of clue you in that something was going on? When she came in with three residents, that clued me into something was going on. And I thought to myself, this is a teachable moment. Yeah. Um, She moved very quickly, eloquently, and efficiently from introducing herself and her residents to the idea that I was being diagnosed with non-lodge non-Hodgkin's large cell B lymphoma and that uh, I also was very treatable and that she gave me a very good uh, set of odds with regard to how I would recover uh, or survive lymphoma. Um, So within a minute, she told me I had lymphoma, that it was treatable, and that I had about an 80% chance of surviving. So that was all very... Well, that's an interesting way to break bad news, right? Yeah. We, as medical educators, remember the whole breaking bad news. So she did so very efficiently, it sounds like. Well, I even told her, I said, one of the things you need to know about me is that I'm a health communication professor, (laughs) and I want to congratulate you on 
delivering bad news in a very effective patient-centered way and then I think I turned to the three residents and I said I hope you're paying attention <laughs> wow but but I can't help but wonder and this is the phrase I use most often in the podcast I can't help but wonder when did you become Jay the patient who was just told that you were given a diagnosis of cancer and not be sort of the educator and the scholar and you know when, when did it hit you I, you know, I don't know that I ever separated the two personas. I thought, without sounding too Pollyanna-ish, that if I'm gonna, if I have an eighty percent chance of surviving, I really want to pay attention to everything that happens to me over the course of how many months. And and at that point, I hadn't even it hadn't even occurred to me that the treatment would be chemotherapy or whatever. I really didn't know enough about non-Hodgkin's lymphoma to know how I was going to be treated. But then when she said I had an 80% chance of surviving and I asked her what the treatment was, she told me that she was going to have a couple of other tests to help her decide which of two courses of chemotherapy she was going to select for me. So then I knew it was chemotherapy, but but I didn't know for how long. And then when she told me that it was going to be six cycles with each cycle lasting three weeks, then I did the math and thought, oh my God, I'm going to be a patient until June. Yeah. Um, wow. So that was, that was sobering. And I knew I wasn't going to be teaching that quarter uh, or the next quarter. And uh, I wondered a lot about things like how will my family handle this? How will my friends respond to this? Uh, so those were all questions that were spinning around in my head. But I also do think I maintained the health communication scholar persona throughout. It was always interesting to me how I was communicated with by registration clerks, nurses, uh, the oncologist herself, mm-hmm. uh, and other patients when I was at the cancer center. Yeah, and we're going to get into that because I want to I want to hear more about some of your stories and experiences. I have two questions before we get there, though. Um, one is, when were you told it was stage four? Uh, when she diagnosed me the first time, okay, that with within that first ten minutes. What was that like? Because I think cancer is one thing, but then knowing the different stages, how 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 did she deliver that, and how did you take that? Well, stage four to me is a flashing red light. Uh, it is different in lymphoma than it is in other types of cancer. Oh, okay. Specifically, lymphoma is rarely diagnosed in stages one or two. There aren't aren't any symptoms that are that glaring that would prompt someone to seek medical care Mm. in those first two uh, 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 levels of of cancer. Um, So it's not the same as stage four pancreatic cancer or stage four colon cancer Mm. um, in terms of severity. It's, it's also the particular kind of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma I had was large cell B diffuse. And, and it was everywhere. It was in my lungs. It was in my uh, stomach. It was in a number of my abdominal organs aside from my stomach. And so it was something that had to be uh, aggressively treated. And the particular kind of chemotherapy that she ended up prescribing, um, which is called our epoch, uh, is very aggressive. Um, and so uh, 
it, it each cycle became progressively more difficult to tolerate. Um, but I also knew throughout the course of those cycles that um, that I was getting better, that the, that the cancer was being eliminated, eradicated from my body. I want to get into your, your chemo treatment a little bit because you went through 18 weeks yeah. of, of that. Um, so how would you describe that? Well, you know, I, I, one of the best parts about having uh, the chemo treatment that I had, which was called R Epoch, and, and I can spell out what those mean, but it's a um, it's a it's a type of chemotherapy that allows me allowed me to show up at the cancer center during my week of chemo uh, and have a bag in a carry bag uh, attached to the port, which was implanted in my chest and go home. So I didn't have to sit in an infusion room as many people do for six or seven hours. Uh, I, during chemo week, I did spend a, a, a longer day at the hospital on Monday. And then Tuesday I would show up and have the bag exchanged. And Wednesday I would have another bag and Thursday I would have another bag. And Friday, I would have the bag detached and I'd be free mm. of the bag for the, till the next cycle. So for two more for two weeks was considered recovery. Okay. Um, the the first week was was okay. The first week of recovery was okay. The second week of recovery was pretty brutal. I was mm. pretty fatigued. Um, but I have to say that the the part about this cancer center that made this really tolerable were the nurses. Yeah. The nurses were incredible. They were warm, they were smart, they were problem solvers, they were empathic. They paid a lot more attention to the many, many side effects that I had compared to my oncologist. Yeah. Uh, my oncologist, it always seemed that I was telling her a side effect that she had never heard of before in her life. And I, and I grew to adore my oncologist but she didn't really seem to pay too much attention to the side effects. She was paying attention to my blood counts. Yeah. Um, but the nurses, they were very good listeners about my side effects. They empathized with my side effects and they really made lots of great suggestions that helped me deal with my side effects. Yeah. So just let our listeners know we're um, in a sub suburb outside of Chicago so there's sirens and cars going by yeah. um, so adding to the ambiance of, of the recording um, can you give me a story a, a situation with with a nurse or something that stands out in your mind well I was um, I remember I was in the infusion room one day not to get an extended round of chemotherapy but just because that was the room that I had that they had available for me uh, for any number of things, whether it was a blood test or, or, or some sort of an injection. And one of the nurses um, I noticed uh, really was moving like she was playing some sort of a sport. And I asked her, I said, we, are you an athlete? Were you an athlete? Did you play sports? And she says, oh yeah. And she, she went on to say she played volleyball in high school and basketball in high school. And I remember we really bonded over the idea of athletics mm -hmm. and movement. And she was particularly empathic and caring about the fact that I'd always identified as someone who 
was athletic and played sports and then I wasn't going to be playing sports in the short term and then it would take a long time to recover from chemotherapy so that I could play sports again. And I just remember that was a really great experience of connecting with somebody um, where she's the caregiver who's providing care, I'm the patient who's needy and in need of care and she was able to level the play, playing field, if you'll pardon the sports pun, uh, to make us communicate as peers. Um, and I could probably, I probably have a story about five or six nurses at that cancer center where we bonded over anything from family vacations to cooking. Uh, but these are incredible, incredibly um, knowledgeable and professional hospital staff who are very good at their jobs um, and I just have nothing but respect for the work that they do on a day in and day out basis. Yeah, and given how many hours you were there I suppose you know you have this opportunity to get to know them and they got to know you and you know that's something I never would have anticipated when my chemo was done um, the last day of the last bag being removed um, we brought in a bottle of Martinelli's sparkling, non-alcoholic apple cider, <laughs> and we popped the cork, and there were six or seven nurses in the room. We all you know, had a, had a sip of this apple cider, and, um, and then I was free. I was done. And it was really kind of a strange phenomenon that I missed that regular interaction with those nurses. Yeah. Um, I did have follow-up. I continue to go to the cancer center for blood work. Not nearly as often as I used to, but I, I will be, a, as most people know, anything about cancer, I will be a cancer patient for five years mm -hmm. um, with probably quarterly blood draws and twice annual uh, CT scans. Uh, but it was, it was a strange thing to, to have this connection with these incredible healthcare professionals for this long 18 week period and then have it just end. Yeah, would you say that that was part of your healing, the relationships you established and the bonds that were There's created? no question, there's yeah. no question. So looking back at the time that you spent with these nurses and, and you know, chemo specifically, because we're already sort of diving into this, um, what are some advice that you have for people who are going through chemo? Ooh, so what, um, are, what are some things that you're like, oh, I never would have thought to ask this, do this? Well, there's just so many side effects. Mm. I mean, having your hair fall out is really the least painful side effect. Mm. Um, I, I, I did end up talking a lot about um, suffering more than I talked about pain. Um, when I talk to people about being a cancer patient, um, there, there's, there is quite a bit, there is quite a bit of suffering. Um, the, the technology and the medications that they have to combat things like nausea are incredible, but, but you will suffer. Uh, it is, it is a extremely humbling experience to go through cancer. Um, you do have to read as much as you can from the patient perspective because the the the, cl the clinical perspective, the biomedical perspective, 
doesn't really cover so many of the psychological and social aspects of having... The psychosocial, the biopsychosocial. Yeah. Um, you know, lots of people came and visited for the first couple of weeks and months, and not as many people came and visited the last three or four months. Right. Um, I don't want to put any blame on my friends and family, but but it, you, it is a lonely business to be a cancer patient. At the same time, I was overwhelmed by the efforts of my friends and family to care for me via gifts, books, care packages. Um, one of my former colleagues sent um, Harry and David's fruit baskets oh. <laughs> once a month, which I started to look forward to. Oh, no. You know, my friend in Iowa wrote me a long four-page single-space letter and I don't remember most of what the letter said I kept it I know that but one of the things she said was despite the pain and the and the disappointment you must be feeling for having to go through cancer treatment you must also gain a great deal of satisfaction to see how many people care about you and love you and that was absolutely true that that did come through loud and clear. Um, interestingly, I have a colleague who is going through chemotherapy now. And while I don't know him well, I do know that he's probably starving for company. Mm. And so one of the things on my to-do list uh, in the next couple of days is to reach out and say, I've been where you've been, would you like a visitor? I mean, I'm happy to go watch a movie with him, play chess, read something out loud. I just know that part of the difficulty, and this is probably true of any person who's going through a particularly challenging illness, is the lack of social contact that you may have grown accustomed to but has been kind of shut off. Yeah. You had mentioned, um, you know, the because I was going to ask you about it, um, thinking twofold number one did you have people that didn't contact you that sort of you were in contact with and kind of just disappeared absolutely and and then two um what would you say to the people who don't know what to say because that's the other thing is i don't want to impede i'm sure that they're trying to heal i you know i don't want to get in the way i so so what is your response to them well one of the books i'd like to recommend is called how to be a friend to a friend who's sick. Oh, okay. Um, it's uh, it's a it's a very blunt uh, uh, set of guidelines for people who don't know what to say or don't know what to do. Okay. Um, Can you give us one or two specific examples? Anything that well, one out? of the one of the things that's been true in the literature about social support with regard to any illness is don't ask people, just call me and tell me what you need. Oh, That's not helpful. Yeah. That makes somebody who's already then you're feeling... responsible. Yeah, then you're responsible <laughs> for coming up with a list and making sure the list isn't too demanding. Right, okay. It's better, if you want to provide social support to somebody who's, who's ill, is just tell them, for example, I'm going to the grocery store and I'm going to pick up some groceries for you. Is there anything in particular that... I can bring, but I am going to bring fruit 
and snacks and juice. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, I, I I mean, it depends on the individual patient, but uh, most of us probably appreciate a good novel. I had a friend come over um, with looked like about a half a dozen uh, vinyl LPs from the 1970s. One of them that I remember is, was Chaka Khan. Uh, and he brought me a bunch of records and he brought me a bunch of books. And I loved every one of them, you know? It was more about the effort mm. of just bringing something. Um, I, I also cannot understate the value of receiving cards, postcards in the mail. Um, a, a number of my friends wrote poems for me, put together mixtapes for me. Um, with regard to people who didn't show up, um, I've softened my opinion a little bit insofar as I've got to recognize that all of us have a past and that for some people, uh, the idea of visiting someone who's very sick might be overwhelming for them. Uh, I know somebody who just cannot go into a hospital without feeling nauseous himself based on a, 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 an experience he had when he was much younger. So I guess I've learned that I've got to cut people some slack uh, who didn't show up. But I was, I was, I was disappointed with a, with a few people who, um, who didn't return phone calls or quite frankly seemed like they didn't want to know. And, um, and that disappointment, I think, has transitioned into a little bit of compassion for the possibility that they've gone through something that I don't know about or, or can't recognize. Yeah. I also heard you say earlier, too, about um, with a friend who is diagnosed, you want to offer just to be there. Yeah. You know, and so when in doubt, a phone call, you know, I want to say to, to most of my friends, how are you doing? Is that an appropriate way to start? Because I don't know. I have cancer. How do you think I'm doing? You know, I'm thinking, is, is that how, you know what I mean? Like how, what, what, what would be appropriate to say? I'm calling because I just, I'm thinking of you. Yeah, I think that's great. And I don't think you have to have the, the sort of philosophical statement that solves all the problems. Right. I think one of the most poignant thoughtful and honest things I heard, and I heard it from probably half a dozen people, is when I told them, uh, they said, I don't know what to say. I'm, I'm sorry this is happening to you. I think that's incredibly positive mm-hmm. and, and useful uh, because it is a phenomena being faced with an illness that could prove terminal. It, it is hard to put language around that. Uh, but to say, I don't know what to say, points to that aspect of the human experience that is not verbal, not able to be verbalized. And what have we been taught? You know, there's so much of stigma and taboo about so many aspects, cancer, um, death, uh, changes in people's identity, all, all of these things that we just don't talk about. And as a result, we're really not skilled to have those conversations and as a result and and we're communication scholars i sometimes find myself like i don't know what to say and i'm afraid of saying the wrong thing so one of the things you had said earlier was about other patients you said you got to know some of them are there any stories um, that stand out or or things that you discussed with them that are sort of poignant in your mind well you know i i was surprised by how little patient interaction there was i mean i did interact with with patients 
Uh, but there was also even a kind of a structural impediment to patients interacting in a, in a, in a really meaningful way uh, or in a prolonged way. Um, one, of, one, of, one of my memories of, of, this, of this chemotherapy experience was being kind of on the, in the last days or the last week or two of being a, a chemotherapy recipient and I spotted a woman in the waiting room who had two or three uh, bags with with changes of clothing and food and books and I thought oh I bet she's just starting I bet she's just starting mm-hmm. chemotherapy and um, and really wanting to have an opportunity to talk with her whether I could have provided any support or answered any questions she might have had I don't know because she was within a minute called and, and brought to the back uh, but I also remember being a brand new patient and sitting at the registration counter and two windows down was another patient who was saying this is my last week of chemo mm. and thinking to myself oh my god I am so far away from that moment um, so I do think that there are ways in which uh, healthcare treading lightly because not all patients want to share their story with other patients right. but I do think that there could have been more opportunities to interact with with other patients I did become a volunteer as a result of this experience for an organization that matches uh, cancer survivors with existing cancer patients, that is pa- patients who are currently undergoing. What's the name of that? The name of the organization? Yeah. Is called Immerman's Angels. Immerman, can you spell that? Yeah, I-M-E-R-M-A-N, okay. apostrophe S, Angels. Okay. And I believe it's, I believe it's nationwide. Yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and so, uh, independent of the colleague who is undergoing chemotherapy right now, I am looking forward to being able to uh, contribute to, to this organization because I do think that there's ways in which talking to someone who's gone through it would have been helpful. I have a tennis buddy who learned about my diagnosis and who reached out to me and said, you probably don't know this, but I'm a he was a throat cancer survivor and if you want to get together for a cup of coffee and talk about it, I'd be happy to. And I definitely oh, took them up on it. Yeah. yeah, and I've heard that from other people too. They got diagnosed with whatever condition, illness, and all of a sudden people sort of came out of the woodworks and then sort of disclosed their own illness or condition. So that's interesting. It's definitely a theme that I'm hearing from you is the importance of sharing your story and finding others to share their stories and hear about what the actual experience is like beyond the pamphlet, beyond the information that the clinicians are giving you. Yeah, I, I started a blog and, and I started a blog for two reasons. One, because I'm in my 50s, I thought if I don't write everything down, I won't remember most of this. Yeah. And you have pictures too. And pictures on yeah. my blog. Yeah. And two, um, which was not something that I thought of when I started the blog, two was as an academic, as a researcher, as a writer, I had an audience for what I had to write. And their constant encouragement of what I had to write about and what I had to describe 
um, was a great source of self-esteem building because uh, I did not feel like I was worth much as a cancer patient. I wasn't teaching. I wasn't contributing much at all to the household in terms of cooking, cleaning, shoveling the snow, whatever. And so one area where I can claim um, a, a significant aspect of my identity is writing. And when I got feedback f for my writing, uh, that made me feel really good and it made me want to write more often. Yeah. And so I did. Can you share with us your blog? Uh, it's from an organization called Caring Bridge. Mm -hmm. Uh, is it still alive? Yeah, it's oh, still okay. alive. I, I was I was probably publishing about a thousand to fifteen hundred words every three or four days during chemo, and even really for the months after chemo, because recovery is is quite intense. Um, now I'm probably publishing about once a month. Oh, oh, um, you're oh okay. Yeah. Um, Horrible friend, friend disclosure. I well, didn't know you were still published. Yeah, there's 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 still things to be said. <laughs> oh, um, oh yeah, there absolutely. Yeah. So so February seventh will be the anniversary of my diagnosis. Okay. And so if up. I publish between now and then, I will definitely publish on February seventh. Okay. And then in March, I have my next CT scan, uh, which will confirm, I believe, that my cancer is still gone. Um, but again, that will be an opportunity for me to connect with my oncologist and the head nurse who I adore nice. and, uh, and talk a little bit about, you know, what, what the next steps are. I think we missed the blog. You said it was like Caring, Caring Bridge. Caring Bridge yeah. is the name of the service that provides space for patients. Okay. Uh, I think it's caringbridge.com backslash jbaglia. J-A-Y-B-A-G-L-I-A. Correct. Excellent. Yeah. Um, good. So we are nearing the end of our time. Um, I do have two other questions. Um, for those who are listening, I've heard you talk a lot about support. Um, having friends, colleagues, people come and, and write letters and different things that they did. Um, how important has it been for you to have um, a caregiver and, and someone in your life who is a part of your cancer journey well my partner and my child uh people were, yes people they, these i mean you know I, I i i really can't imagine what it was like for her to learn that her partner had a stage four cancer uh, i can't get inside of her head um i just know that she was a rock and she was incredibly supportive throughout the whole ordeal um, and she was concerned and probably scared um, my daughter who is eight years old now but was seven years old when I went through this that was another eye-opening experience about identity she knew I was sick we told her from the beginning what was going on with me and that it was serious and that I would look sicker before I looked better. Mm. Um, she always treated me first and foremost as her dad. And that was another huge component of self-esteem and identity that I was always first and foremost her dad and secondarily, or maybe even tertiary or later down the road, somebody who had, somebody who had cancer. Mm. Um, 
and then I had my mom come and stay um, and help out around the house for five or six weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, I hope you don't mind me saying that you came and stayed for four or five days and helped out. My friend um, Christine came and stayed before I started chemo, but helped me psychologically uh, and holistically prepare for the treatment. And two of my brothers came and stayed for a a length of time. And uh, independent of people who came and stayed, uh, I did have, you know, I did have uh, opportunities to to interact and, and, and converse with, with people about this experience. Looking back, what would you say this whole experience has been like? Um, I think I'm going to be a little bit more, if I haven't started already, I'm going to be a lot more picky and choosy about the things I take on. Uh, we all have to do work that we aren't particularly enthralled by, but is necessary for the good of the organization. There's also quite a bit of work that is suggested, mandated, assigned, um, that at this point in my career, I feel more than happy or confident enough to say, I'm not interested in doing that. Um, Time does kind of come flying forcefully as a finite resource when you're facing a potentially terminal illness. And so decision-making around how one spends one time, I think is, is something that is, is life altered. It's altered as a result of an experience such as this. So my final question is what um, resources do you have that you may not have touched on yet for people who are either newly diagnosed or specifically have lymphoma or a loved one? Is there any other books or websites or blogs that you've come across that you think would be helpful for people? Well, I do, I do think that you should read, if, you, if you're diagnosed with something like cancer, I think you should read about cancer experiences with the complete understanding that there's, I don't think that there are two cancer experiences that are the same. Um, one that I recall from graduate school was called, um, is called Cancer in Two Voices. It's actually a story of a lesbian couple where one is diagnosed with breast cancer and who ultimately succumbs to breast cancer. But it does, I think, deeply uncover the ways in which a terminal illness in a romantic partnership is something that is confronted by both of those people. Both of those people have something to lose and something to gain from that experience. other resources, I think, are your uh, social worker, wherever you're, wherever you're um, being treated. Mm-hmm. Uh, most large centers have social workers. Uh, they may not always have um, specific things that you need, but they certainly have. Uh, uh, they're certainly available to talk through different challenges. Um, and I think that the other thing, the resource that I do think I drew upon throughout my, um, throughout my treatment was I kept my membership at the gym active. Mm-hmm. Even though it cost me uh, you know, a significant chunk of change every month, um, 
on those days that I felt good enough to go work out, I was glad I had that gym to go work out in. Mm -hmm. If I'd frozen my membership or, or terminated my membership and I'd had days where I wanted to be physically active and I didn't have a place to go, I would have been, I would have regretted it. Mm. Um, so I don't know how many times I went to the gym between February and June, um, but probably a dozen or so, but every single one of those was such a gift to mm. lift weights or to shoot baskets, um, just or to swim or to sit in a whirlpool. Um, it was just a reminder that uh, I will I will get through this and I will I will be active again someday at, at the level that I'm makes me happy well thank you oh and and I would say to our listeners um, dr. Laura Ellingson was on realistically ever after so she talks about living with cancer um, in, in terms of the long-term effects so I would yeah. I would encourage people to listen to that podcast yeah. um, so thank you so much Dr. Baglia, Jay, for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. Reminders to our listeners to like us on Facebook at Health Stories Podcast. We're also on Twitter at Stories Health. And there is a blog, Nicole Deffenbaugh, D-E-F-E-N-B-A-U-G-H dot com slash blog. You can leave comments or let us know if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on our show. So thank you again for listening, and we hope you join us again next week. This is Nicole Deffenbaugh with Health Stories.